Welcome to another edition of This Week in Digital Trust, 11M's regular conversation about all things tech policy, privacy and cybersecurity. Hi Marge, I'm joining you once again from a wobble country and I'm joined again by Jordan. Hi Jordan, how's it going? Hey Arch, I'm good. I'm joining you as usual from Wurundjeri country and... I already know that. Specifically where <laughs> I am is, is, is on topic for today, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. How did you know? How did I know? How did, well, your coordinates have been revealed to me. No, we, well, location data. What a great topic. What a great uh, piece of information that exists in the world that companies can use and law enforcement can use and if you knew my advertising id you could probably go buy my live location from someone so (laughs) yes very real yeah so we're going to talk about location data and what it means to have it how easily it can be obtained uh how it's traded and sold and you know i guess what the risks and the benefits are around apps that ask for and use your location data which I think is a cool conversation. I think we've had it kind of on the backlog of things we wanted to talk about because to me, it's a little bit like philosophically, it just takes us into a different realm. I feel when you talk about location and physical proximity, it's a bit like the conversation we had about facial recognition a few weeks ago where this idea that you can kind of step away from your computer and you feel like you're at least stepping away from the tracking when you do that. But in fact, <laughs> you're not, you know, there, there is an ability for your physical location to be tracked and to be then traded and for you to be targeted on that basis. And so I think that's why it's an important topic. Yeah. And it's one of those things that's kind of developed without our real knowledge or awareness. I mean, or, or it's something that we're kind of all aware of that your phone tracks your location and Google Maps tracks your location and your weather app pings your location. Like we're kind of aware that we're walking around with tracking devices in our pockets, but it's one of those things that has grown gradually and that awareness has grown gradually and when you actually stop and do a stock take of just what you can infer from location data and who has access to it and the flimsiness of the de-identification and the controls around it you get to like this really concerning place but because it's been incremental i don't think that's front of mind for people so yeah, yeah, an important topic to kind of dig into in its own right. Exactly. I think the risks around it and the extent to which that data is kind of used and, and potentially exploited is just not front of mind. I will say, I think for me, one of the coolest things about that sort of post-smartphone era was suddenly coming across all these location-based apps and services. Like for me, I just remember like, oh, it's so cool now that I can find restaurants near me or I can even find friends near me or the online dating apps that sort of emerged so where you could kind of find people within your area. And it, it seemed like, uh, like this is very silly, but like back when me and some friends wanting to come up with the next big startup because everybody else was getting rich off tech, it was like the ideas we always came up with were always like location-based things. Like what if you could find the closest insert word near you? That's going to be the, you know, the next unicorn so it was always like a driver of excitement about tech and we'll get to this but that's the real tension i think that like it is tremendously useful like my phone knowing physically where it is in the world tremendously useful the problem is that when that data then gets aggregated linked to me or my advertising id and monetized and commercially available 
that's the problem, right? We have this conversation with facial recognition as well, right? If we can constrain the uses to the things that are useful and kind of shield ourselves from if we can build some trust or build some rules, some limitations around those secondary uses, that's the job, right? Let's preserve those super useful applications and do something about the problematic ones. Yeah. So speaking of problematic, I guess the thing that probably triggered us to have this conversation now was an article we saw in Wired over the last couple of weeks, which was talking about this move by lawmakers in the US from both sides of politics to come together and stop the practice of law enforcement agencies buying phone data, buying location data, which in the US, in theory, this kind of information should be prohibited or at least require a court order or a warrant because they have the Fourth Amendment, which kind of guarantees against unreasonable government searches and seizures. But there's been this kind of loophole in the law that allows these agencies to collect this kind of location data because they're able to buy it essentially um so you can kind of go to these data brokers and because the data brokers are collecting it and they've already done all the the legwork in terms of acquiring it from apps that have asked for consent all of that kind of stuff that we often talk about it's there commercially available so law enforcement agencies have been buying this stuff and it's been a pain point for both sides of politics that we have this fourth amendment and it's just being looked over so they're now kind of celebrating the fact that they are moving together in a bipartisan way to introduce some sort of legislation to shut down this loophole so that police can't buy this anymore yeah it's a really interesting story on a number of levels right because it's identifying this thing that the private sector does that government agencies would require a warrant to do, which is like place a tracking device effectively on everybody with a smartphone, monitor their live location. Law enforcement would require a warrant to track people's whereabouts, whereas commercial companies, your weather app, your phone, your mobile provider can all do that as part of their service and then provided they have the right terms in your terms of service saying you consent to them sharing that data or selling it, then they can do that too. So there's this kind of realization, I suppose, that that is extremely intrusive and that law enforcement then getting access to that data provides them an end run around the kind of limitations on searches and seizures in the Fourth Amendment. I find this story just so fascinating because it's characteristic of a lot of, like, it's a good news story, right? It's one of the few things that the US Congress seems to be able to regulate in privacy, right? At the moment, there's lots of other things that are kind of mooted and then fall over because they can't get bipartisan support. But this seems to have bipartisan support. So it's a good news story. It fits for me in this kind of category of good news stories from the US, which is like, yes, that's good news, but like, how on earth did we get here in the first place? Because this law only addresses federal government agencies buying this data. It doesn't actually address the underlying problem, which is there's this whole commercial industry of tracking. And in fact, it doesn't even stop, say, a foreign government buying it. It doesn't stop you and me, Arj, going and buying this data about someone. What it stops is the US federal government buying the data, which is not the solution, right? And you look at it and it's like, yes, good job. You seem to be making some progress. But like, 
look at the underlying problem here. Why aren't we dealing with the underlying problem here? Yeah, totally. Like the government surveillance is only like the end symptom of this problem where you've got the commercial surveillance that's enabling it. And it reminded me of our conversation about TikTok many episodes ago. I think it was episode 49 where we were saying, well, we're all worried about a Chinese-owned company running TikTok and therefore that that data might end up in the hands of the Chinese government. But if TikTok didn't exist, China could just come in and buy all of the information it needed about American citizens from data brokers. And it's kind of the same thing here. It's like the problem is that the data broker ecosystem is building these rich pictures and making it available for sale. And we're focusing on location data, but it's a problem with the commercial data industry in general. Um, This law that we're talking about has been motivated in part by this really interesting report from the Office of the Director of National Intelligence on commercially available information, which I think was recently declassified. The, the report's from the last couple of years. The report itself is quite dense, but there's a really good Wired article about it that we'll share in the show notes. But it's really going through the range of commercially available data from the so location data first of all and we'll talk about like in a second just how sensitive that can be and what you can infer and so on because it's worth digging into but also all this stuff about people's demographics or propensities or interests or even your web browsing history you know the idea that government could have free access to pretty much every book a person's read or tv show they've watched on a population basis is just like mind-bogglingly big brother but that's where we are right with this kind of industry so so there's this really interesting report talking about the range of data that's available commercially and the intelligence uses and counterintelligence uses and threats from foreign governments and so on just wanted to call that out that's yeah a really interesting read Okay, so let, let's let's hone in on this location data conversation. You know, what is it? What's the big deal about it? What's the risks? Um, so obviously, like location data, we've all got, as you said, these phones in our pockets. They have um, GPS capabilities. So GPS coordinates are obviously one form of location data uh, that apps on our phone might be emitting out to data brokers, might be collecting and emitting. But there's also this thing called these mobile advertising IDs, which are actually assigned to mobile phones and tablets and devices. Yeah, there's a whole ecosystem of an advertising ID. Some phone manufacturers, Apple ad tracking transparency was a thing that I introduced probably a few years ago now, which was limiting apps' access to those kinds of universal identifiers or making them seek permission. Um, But yeah, they're identifiers that ad networks or data networks assign to people or to devices, which then apps can say, this ID was here at this time. And so these mobile advertising IDs, which are assigned to a device, particularly in combination with the phone's GPS capabilities, can give a really detailed view of where a person's phone, in other words, where a person goes, 
and what apps they're downloading, what they're visiting and where they're doing that. And it sort of builds that rich picture. And I guess one of the get outs of the companies that do some of this is always that this stuff is anonymous, that it's not GPS coordinate or mobile ID and your name. But the point with location information is that over time, really precise coordinates in a longitudinal sort of way can build a really rich picture of how someone lives their lives, their daily routines in a way that is very identifiable. There's one great quote from a New York Times article that you shared with me, Jordan, a couple of days ago from 2019 that investigates this whole area of location data and tracking. And the quotes that DNA is probably the only thing that's harder to anonymize than precise geolocation information. And it's that longitudinal view, I think, that people probably don't realize as well. It's sort of like, if I give you, yes, access to my location right now, here and now, and I'm somewhere, what are you going to know? Maybe not a lot, but if you build that picture over time, you can definitely profile and identify me. It's that over time picture and... Not just over time, but like quite precise locations. So these things, like your GPS can pin down to like within centimeters or tens of centimeters, right? Physically where your phone is. So it's not just like my phone is in my house. It's my phone is on my bedside table at a particular time, or it's in the kitchen or it's on the kitchen table or it's out in the backyard. One of the real eye openers for me around location data happened a couple of years ago when a guy I was working with who's got this kind of background in intelligence and data analytics and stuff did like a lunch and learn at work and, and sat us down and walked us through like an analysis of his mobile phone location history over like a six month period when he was off working in another city. And is this like really intimate walk through his day? You could see he was living in an apartment on a particular floor of a building and you could see like height wise what apartment you could see his routine when he got up in the morning because his phone moved from his bedside table to the bathroom to the kitchen you could see which days he went to the gym if you knew the layout of the gym you could see which exercise equipment he was using you could tell if he went to the cafe you could tell how late he was staying at work you could tell what restaurants he went to if you're combining it with other people's mobile phone traces, you could tell if he stayed at his house or at someone else's or how much time he spent with different people. It was this tremendously intimate view into his day-to-day life. And I think that kind of the detail that you can get from these things is perhaps not front of mind for people like location at any one given point in time, not particularly exciting. But yeah, like you say, that longitudinal view is terrifyingly intimate and i i think that speaks to the bogusness i think of the consent view of this which is that a user consented to give their location because i think we're not we can't appreciate the true trade-off that we're making because as you just described when you get the app pop up and say we need your location for this thing can we use it you're thinking about that probably that one particular data point in that particular moment or moments like that. Okay, I need to know the weather. Sure, I get that you need to know where I am right now. So yeah, I'll say yes. Or I'm looking for the local bakery and you need to know. But that's consent for like, yes, I want to know where the local baker is. It's not consent for like, you can hold this forever and 
use it to infer what I enjoy or where I am or build a detailed trace of me, you know? Yeah, and and that's where you sort of are even overtly aware that location has something to do with the app that you're using. The level at which this has sort of been industrialized is that there are location services built into the development kits of all sorts of apps, apps that probably don't have any reasonable need to collect and use location data but people who develop apps they're offered these software development kits that have this location stuff built in and there's some commercial benefit in the app developer putting that into the app but you as a user you're using a flashlight or something on your phone which has got nothing to do with location but there it is and so even when you are aware of it you're not aware of the secondary use you're not aware of the that that's going to lead to building the kind of picture you were talking about your colleague walking you through it's like you it's just not something we properly compute, I think. Yeah, no, it's not. And we're talking about consent because there are really two bases for this happening under Australia. Like happens in the US, also happens here, right? Like location data gets used, collected and used for all sorts of advertising purposes. That's on the basis in Australian law of kind of two theories. One is that the information's identified, de-identified, that it's connected to a advertising id they don't know who that advertising id is they're going to keep that information secure and they're not going to identify anyone and so it's safe right it's not personal information that's the theory i think that's bogus and we've talked about the intimacy of the data and how easy it is from any particular trace to identify the person so question whether that's valid but then the second theory is okay if it is personal information we've got people's consent right it's buried in the terms of service or or there was a pop-up for them to use the app on their phone or whatever, and that's effectively a person's consent, and so we're allowed to use it. Even if it is personal information, we're allowed to use it for this pathway. I think we've pretty well established our view, right, that, that both of those are pretty bogus, that it's trivial to identify a person from a GPS trace, and those consents are pretty questionable. I mean, on the on the identification one, that New York Times article about location data, I think, is great because they've clearly one of their reporting strategies, I think, was just look through traces, identify where people live, go knock on their door and then ask them. Yeah, like they've talked to all these people that they've identified. How do we feel that we know all this about you? Yeah. How do you feel that we found you? Right. We know where you work. We know you get to go to the gym. We know you spent three hours at this motel on the side of Highway 22, you know, like, yeah. Which we should probably articulate those kind of risks and concerns a little bit more because in you describing your colleague, you already get a sense of, okay, well, firstly, there's an incredible sort of violation of their private space to be able to know how high up in a building they live or what gym equipment they were using. What specific room of their house they spend how much time in. Yeah. So even just on the face of it, that seems to be quite invasive, but it can be anything from, you know, if you're a high profile figure, a famous person, a politician, just the physical safety risks of sort of stalking and, you know, intimidation and harassment are made easier if you can map out someone's exact routine. Um, um, But even just things that are potentially matters of embarrassment or visits to sensitive medical establishments, I guess the more well-known situation over the last couple of years in particular, um, post Roe v. Wade of like abortion clinic data and people going and spending time in those clinics and therefore that being something that can be inferred about the fact that they're using those services. That's particularly 
an important one, I think, because that location, presence at an abortion clinic in particular states in the US, was sensitive but not kind of criminal data until a particular day after which that's potentially an offence, right? And I think that it's a relevant consideration that these things can change as well, but that trace of your presence in that place does not go away. Yeah, and it again speaks to the fact that it's a sort of an ill-defined risk versus like an immediate benefit that an app a year ago asked you for your location, but then a year on suddenly could criminalise you because the law changed and... There are some other great examples in that New York Times piece. They had one example of a person who was regularly spending two-hour portions of time at a particular motel off a freeway. There was an example of a guy who worked at Microsoft, visited Amazon one time, and then started working at Amazon a month later, right? I mean, like an employer having access to that data? I think there are some really interesting kind of power relationship and surveillance problems about like the potential for a employer to purchase that data and use that to police their employees, right? Like I noticed that you spent a lot of time at the pub. You were in the pub at 1am and we're here on a a 7am meeting and you're not performing, let alone like policing interviews at other employers. Or investigating. I think this might've come up with maybe an Uber data breach leak at some point, but like investigating things like relationship status of two colleagues who happen to leave together and tracking them going to the same motel or something. I mean, there's so much, this is the thing, like the physical spaces we visit, just as much as our online browsing history can reveal so much, but also that power to kind of, join the location maps of two people and see where they intersect and how they spend time together or three people. So freedom of association comes into play as well. Yeah. And it's also like most surveillance and privacy kind of harms, it's born disproportionately by those who are already disadvantaged, right? Like I largely straight white guy, little to hide. I also have a relatively flexible job. All of these harms don't particularly apply to me, but if you're a young person with a family that's not supportive of their sexuality, if you're a survivor of family violence, if you're a person who works in a very highly structured, highly controlled industry, all of the access to this data has all of these potentials for misuse that the less privilege and power you have, the more likely you are to have this stuff used against you as well. So one of the stories I came across, which to me really summed up the insight for me into this whole area was this app called Life360 and uh, The Markup, who are a great investigative journalism website site did a piece on them but Life360 is billed and promoted as a family safety app and its whole overt premise is you'll be able to track where your family goes so they're not shying away from the fact that location information is part of the product and so parents and families sign up for it so they can then know where their kids are and and so forth and What was less clear was the fact that Life360, an increasingly large share of its revenue was coming not from the subscriptions of parents who wanted this service, but from the fact that they were selling this location data on to data brokers. And 
it's that nuance I think that we're sort of speaking to, which is that there are these location-based apps that are actually very useful and we should be able to use them because we get a benefit from them. But we're not aware of that secondary use. We're not aware of the data-broking industry that sits behind it and then what that means for the longer-term privacy and safety of the people that we're tracking. Um, there's a quote in this article from someone called Justin Sherman, who's from the Duke Tech Policy Lab, who talks about this app and says, families would probably not like the slogan, you can watch where your kids are and so can anyone else who buys this information, which is a neat way to sum up what we're really talking about. That's exactly it, right? And that's the crux of my concern about this stuff and my concern about a lot of these kinds of privacy tech intersections, right? I want the cool toys. I want to be able to search for a cafe near me. I want geolocation services. I want Google Maps. I want chat GPT and AI and I want to unlock my phone with my face. I I, I don't want that to be then repurposed and repackaged and turned into a surveillance product, though. I I want to be able to have the good thing and not the bad thing. And I, I, I really think that's where we need to focus with our response to this and with the Privacy Act review and regulation in Australia. I mean, the the Privacy Act review deals explicitly with location information, right? It observes that internationally, the, the consensus is growing that location information is incredibly intrusive and it puts forward some proposals around restricting the use of location data. One of them's about like settings and like you should be able to set app settings to the most restrictive and exclude location data easily, which is fair. The ACCC in Australia recently fined Google like $60 million for essentially having misleading settings around location data. It, it looked like you'd turned it off, but you hadn't really. You needed to find some other setting in some other menu in order to properly turn it off. So, you know, there's that. But the other proposal is to have essentially consent, right? It's that users have to explicitly opt in to sharing location data, which I think doesn't really get us very far because like we've said, you're going to get the app pop up. You're going to say, yes, I want to use Google Maps. You're not going to be able to disaggregate the marketing versus the the app usage or it's going to be confusing. It's not, I don't think that's a good practical kind of solution. I think we need a more principles-based or general kind of restriction around, you know, maybe it's the fair and reasonable test, right? That any use of data has to be fair and reasonable, but it's some kind of limitation to say, look, when I search for the cafe near me, I'm not giving you permission to use my data for other things. And I'm certainly not giving you permission to collect that kind of longitudinal trace. I I don't know. I I want the cool stuff. I don't want the tracking. Why can't I have that? Why can't you have that? Yeah, exactly. Well, I think, I mean, the growing awareness around this stuff hopefully places those expectations. But the idea that it will come just from consumers is always going to be challenging. I think you're right. Like, I think public policy and kind of regulations have to sort of see the risks that people are incurring as a result of these models and place those obligations on businesses that want to collect them. So, yeah, I'm with you. I want the stuff. I don't want the tracking. <laughs> nice slogan. Maybe that's a good place to leave it then. Sounds good. Enjoyed that. I will uh, look forward to chatting with you next week. Talk to you next week. May your week be full of stuff and not full of tracking. <laughs> yeah, thank you. <laughs> Yeah.